netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. for joining us for this FX podcast. The FX podcast is where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We like to dig deep into the technical side and advance the craft of visual effects and pay respect to the people working, creating amazing work. And today, I think we've got a real treat for you. Mike Seymour is going to speak with Rob Legato, visual effects supervisor on The Jungle Book, which is certainly a monumental landmark, I would say, in, in visual effects filmmaking. It's just such a beautiful piece of work, and so much of it is is computer-generated. I mean, they, they only shot the boy um, on green screen, and the rest is every forest, every animal, every everything in the film, except for simple props and, you know, set extension type stuff, small stuff um, that was used for the boy to interact with, is, is computer-generated or extended, and it's just... Not only is it a technical achievement, but just an artistic achievement. And, uh, you know, it's doing well in the box office, which is always great after you work on something for so long, uh, as many people have. And there's a written story on the FX Guide website as well, which also digs into some of these issues that Mike's going to talk with Rob about. But, um, you know, we love talking to Rob. Rob's got a very wide background and a very historic background. You know, I I certainly, I, I became aware of him back in the Titanic days and, before that and Star Trek and all that, but he's he's just such a a pleasant guy and such a great guy to work with um, to, to, to understand how he works when you see him talk, um, give speeches and stuff, and when you read the article on the FX Guide site, when you hear him talk to Mike today, that, that approach to filmmaking, and that's what we're doing is filmmaking, not, you know, documentary. So it's, it's interesting, his approaches and his feelings about how a film is made and how, um, for example, the... Um, you know, when you're making a movie, you, you, your wide shots and your close-ups aren't lit the same when you're shooting a real film. But yet, we tend to think of it that way in, in, in visual effects sometimes. And anyway, he's just got some really interesting um, perspectives on, on how to achieve stuff. And he's obviously been very successful and been involved with some pretty, you know, watershed moments in film and visual effects. So um, I wanted to take a moment to point out that if you haven't noticed over at FXPHD, we've made some changes um, we've probably mentioned them here on the podcast before. I know we have, but um, I haven't had a chance to talk to you about it since uh, I was out from doing the intros for a couple of weeks there. And um, But, you know, we switched to a more subscription model as opposed to a term model. And so it's an all-you-can-eat kind of program now, and you can sign up for a monthly program, a couple different options there, whether you download or not. But what's really great about it is one of the biggest things I always heard about FXPHD was... You know, I love FXPHD, but I just don't have time for the terms, and it's so much pressure, and every week I have to download the class, and, you know, I just don't have time. And, and what I want is the ability to grab a class because I need to learn this today, or I need to understand this concept better n- next week for a project I'm working on. Well, now you can do that. Now you can sign up um, on your end. It's, it's easier because you can just download stuff that you want when you want it uh, or watch it streaming when you want it. And the system is really cleverly designed. John's done an amazing job on that where it remembers where you left off and you you can go back and pick it up again. um, I think you'll really find a lot of the technical changes as exciting as the structure changes that we've done. Um, Anyway, so people would say that to me and now we're able to offer that. So go on over to fxphd.com and check that out. I think you'll find something that you'd like to learn to update your skills or um, 
maybe take advantage of it. And, and so it, I said it works well on your side, but on, on the on the on the um, on the student side, but it also works really well for us because it was really difficult to get all the professors to deliver on a certain date for a term. And, you know, we're all working professionals. So it invariably happens that you agree to do a 10 week class and bam, something changes and the show sketches stretches long or a show starts early or whatever. And suddenly you're just up against the wall trying to get everything done. And it's not a good situation. So this gives us the ability to add classes, which we've been doing pretty regularly now. Um, as they come along, as they're ready, when they're finished. Um, and we don't have to stick to as much structure um, in terms of a term. So anyway, head over to fxphd.com and check it out, what we're offering there. So I don't want to waste any more time. I want to jump right into this interview because I can't wait to hear this interview with Rob Legato joining Mike Seymour. Firstly, congratulations on the film. Wow, I loved it. It was great. Oh, good. Did you enjoy it as a movie, just forgetting the, the technical stuff, but as just as a regular film film, you know? Uh, I went. I was out last night with dinner with my wife, who wasn't at the screening, uh, though my eldest daughter was with me. And um, and I, she said, "Oh, so it was a kids' film. It was good, was it?" Because um, we have another child. And I said, "No, no, it was actually just good as a film." <laughs> oh, good. It's like I, I, there was nothing in it that was uh, that made it adult in the sense of uh, content, except for I just enjoyed it. You know, didn't feel like I was watching the Good Dinosaur, which you know I sort of viewed with the the eyes of a parent. I just mm-hmm. enjoyed the film. I think it's um, it's a winner. Well, what I was hoping for, I mean, or what we were all hoping for, I guess, is the, kind of like the Titanic uh, uh, idea that a grandparent could take their grandkids and they both enjoy the movie because of the because because it's just a, a decent film to watch and it's not yeah. a, a kids oriented or an action oriented film only or a love story you know only that it has a broader broader appeal. Uh, than just that to be successful. But you get kind of close to these things. You can't tell if that's what's actually happening or you're just wishing it to happen. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, um, I think I said to you that it was the first screening that John said he'd shown as a director to an audience that wasn't, in, in his words, paid to be there or, or uh, you know, had a vested interest in, uh, in telling him good things. So it was the first time he'd <laughs> shown it with an audience that was just an audience. Um, Interestingly, he'd done the same thing with Iron Man uh, in Sydney. I don't know why he likes doing that in Sydney, but um, but yeah, no, it was great reception from everyone, and of course, I then got to hear him um, him talk. Uh, but I, uh, the crowd loved it, and uh, that crowd was full of people from you know um, the director of Mad Max uh, to you know people like me. So uh, yeah, oh, fantastic! Well, I'm very glad that you liked it, enjoyed it. Uh, um, it was it was a, a kind of a good one to make. It was a, a very, um, you know, the, all, all movies are are not easy, but this was fairly smooth and straightforward. Everybody's temperament was good. The hours were easy, um, not crazy. Um, uh, uh, the pressure wasn't too high, or you know, especially how these things go. And and uh, and it was fun to. And then also, the studio was just so terrific about supporting every aspect of the uh, of the movie. That uh, it just it makes all the difference in the world. I think in, in that that you're not fighting a entity and, and an us against them sort of thing. And anything that I wanted to do, it wasn't like you get carte blanche. I mean, it's not like somebody says spend whatever you want. It's, but it's like you know, if you had a, a justifiable way that you wanted to attack the movie, <clears throat> you know, you'd show them and they'd say, okay, sounds good, do that. Before and, we get into the technical stuff, I did want to actually ask you about a couple of things that John said that I thought. You know, I'd love to get your perspective on. Um, one of them was he 
discuss the fact, obviously in the context of it being such a technical film, he discussed the fact that he generally likes to work uh, finding happy accidents, being spontaneous, allowing um, you know people to do stuff. And he mm-hmm. discussed that he actually got a remarkable amount of that on this project. For example, he said, just look at what the secondary action is on the crowd scenes around the waterhole, um, just the way that he worked with the voice actors. Like there was this opportunity for a lot of creative contribution not a prescriptive thing where everyone is just told what to do and it was sort of sorted out in previews and no one had any flexibility after that. Yeah, no, the, the whole movie was designed in, in essence that way. And, you know, my certainly my belief system is that um, uh, all creativity is really based in analog uh, thought and behavior and, and you know, sketching. You, you scribble something down, you erase it, you scribble again. You, do, you know, that, that's the way it goes. And computers are very hard and fast. They have an instruction set that's inflexible, so you need an input device that is that allows you to do that. And the same thing with the movie is that you can't just say, okay, let me record a bunch of voices disembodied in, in different in different parts of the world, put it all together, it's all going to work without this give and take, this kind of, oh, look how cool this was with that reaction. Let's go back and revoice that so it justifies that. Re- you know, So there was a, a bit of give and take. It was the next best thing to having literally what you would want is – all that stuff in front of you all the time, and you could find happy accidents, uh, uh, you know, easily. You, you, you uh, our version of it was the next best thing to it actually being all there in front of you at the same time. It's allowing for those that that nuance to to leak in on all things. That's where the virtual camera comes in. That's where, you know, obviously the the way we edit and and. Uh, um, the nuance of, of uh, ca- captured performances that you could do three, four, five takes, just like live action. You, you stick the other one in there and see what that does. And just like, you know, just, you know, editing is analog, really. You have five different takes or five different readings, and you try one, and that, then you go, well, that's interesting. Now I would use this other take because of the way this one responded. And you are continually, you know, rebuilding or re or, or, or resculpting the clay. Um, and, and that's, I, I, I'm glad that John felt that that's that way. Cause that's how we, uh, uh, you know, wish to attack it and, and create an atmosphere for a live action oriented person to, to not be completely swallowed up by the, by the, uh, um, you know, factual demands of anything that's digital. One of the things that I was interested to hear about, it's Neil, is it, is it pronounced his name that your star is yeah, it? Neil. Neil. Yeah. yeah. Um, that he was acting to puppets on set because I've got mm-hmm. to say like the spontaneity and the sort of genuine joy on his face as I was watching it, I didn't know that that he'd, you'd use the puppets and so I was thinking god this kid can really act and I'm sure <coughs> he can really act but then I thought well of course if you if you had kind of some of the best puppeteers in the world giving him something to work off um, was that always in from the outset was that where did that come from that came from the very beginning um oh a, because he's, he's a non-pro, so the ability to conjure up an image and be able to keep it spontaneous take after take is something that's a disciplined, you know, a disciplined actor can do. Ben Kingsley can do it. Uh, yeah. Bill Murray can do it. But, you know, this kid uh, can't necessarily do it. He's never been formally trained. And that's where John came in with him. And then, uh, uh, you know, you do have to give him something to look at. And John was pretty much against the how a seasoned actor would work is that you could give them a monitor with the other person and they could imagine, if you will, what the flesh and blood would be like since they're used to doing it 
you know, on C stands and script supervisors and whatever, whoever else there, they, they, um, they can do that. So, and then the be- next best thing again was, what if you get a Henson puppeteer who's used to engaging children, who's used to engaging and trying to keep their attention and could be spontaneous and can improvise, you know, uh, the next take and the next take to keep it fresh. So you always get a fresh performance from a non-professional. And, and in many cases, what you probably saw as really spontaneous laughing and all that stuff were what would have been considered outtakes, uh, surprises and, and, and uh, uh, you know, off-take moments where he flubbed the line and laughed about it and all of that. So the, 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 the goal was to keep him um, uh, continually engaged, take after take, and find an accident. And, and use it. Because I mean, it's really insightful to the process, isn't it? That instead of an actor trying to project to a tennis ball, you have the director encouraging the guy who's effectively the tennis ball, which is this case, of course, a really good mm-hmm. puppeteer from Henson, to improvise. In other words, he was saying that the Henson puppeteer was encouraged to improvise as much as anybody else. Oh, yeah. Um, because yeah. It didn't, we weren't really recording his side of it anyway. Yeah. And as long as it didn't throw off you know, what he was doing. And, and, you know, to be, you know, Frank, he wasn't doing anything, you know, it wasn't Shakespeare what he was doing either. Uh, uh, But it's enough that, you know, uh, captures your imagination as he's responding um, in kind to a character. And that character was, and you would hear the Bill Murray voice if it was Baloo, you'd hear, you know, Ben Kingsley's voice if it was him. So he's hearing the words, uh, um, then we turn it on and off. We'd have the puppeteer say the line and or the voiceover say the line. So it never got, ne- never varied too far from the intent of the script or the intent of the already recorded performance. But when something did happen that was now justifiable, John would go back and re-record Ben Kingsley or, or, or Bill Murray or whatever and, and just in, enhance those moments. And I think he'd say that if he ever did it again, he would like to have them all in the same room and do it a little more Rango style where you kind of, you know, uh, reference shoot the stage play of it uh, so that so that the voiceover stuff could be more informed the first time. Uh, it was pretty good. I mean, they used, you know, the majority of it, but they still, you know, you still want the accident. You still want something that you can't imagine, um, uh, uh, you know, intellectually because you tend to rule out things. And it's the same, the same holds true for anything we're doing. The same holds true for the camera, the for lighting, for, um, you know, the editing, you, you, you always are looking for the fresh angle and the, and the, uh, and the other thing, uh, that you, you discover as opposed to, you know, uh, dictate it to. So, so let me ask you this kind of broad question, because I think I know the answer, but I'd love to hear you describe it. Like I'm looking at the cinema and I've got an entire jungle and there's a little kid sitting on a bear floating down a river so, like, what are you looking at when that's being recorded? <laughs> what I'm looking at is actually a stuffed thing on a rotisserie in a swimming pool that we built above ground outside the stage. That's what we're looking at. And we, we uh, in that particular case, because we kind of knew what the shots were and all that stuff, we didn't really do simulcam because it was a little too difficult to do with the backgrounds and, and or with those particular cameras because they're underwater cameras and things like that and splash housing. So um, uh, we didn't really need to do that. We already pre, pre-vised the scene, so we knew what the scene was in our head, and we were replicating those angles um, and then, you know, doing the best we could to give them a spontaneous performance. Um, and that's where the puppeteers come in, but he's in a total blue 
you know, a swimming pool with a blue background in downtown LA. And, uh, um, that's, that's what we're, we're looking at that. In fact, for everything, not necessarily pool, but on stage, he's totally surrounded by, you know, blue void, um, with a little bit of set, a teeny bit of set under his feet or what he's touching or whatever. And in many cases, even not, even not even that, but we had a very specific plan. So when we are judging the work, we are seeing a composite that is telling us what it really is going to look like. And then, you know, like anything, you have to have the presence of mind to accept that and imagine in your head it finished so you could make tangible decisions um, of, of how you'd want to improve it. Or you have to see the final product a, little, a bit in your head because the, the, the image on the screen for an outsider would not necessarily give you that same sense that, uh, that, that we get or, or certainly I get. In the end credits, I saw that there was something, uh, a credit given to some group and I think it was somebody and Digital Domain for on-set, uh, not, I'm not going to say previous, but like it was like visualization or something. I, I just it went past too quickly in the end credits. Yeah, the on-set, there was the, the simulcam version. First yeah. we did the, uh, uh, the capture slash camera capture uh, where we shot Neil um, as a motion capture actor. And, many, and in many cases, the digital doubles you see in there are either Neil or one of the stunt kids, you know, as, as a motion capture uh, uh, kid. And I thought that work was rather good. It was really good where hard to detect that a digital double was there at all or that uh, even even another kid was there at all. But at any rate, um, and then the, the same file, the same thing was used to be driven by the Alexa uh, uh, driving in a kind of a, a I wouldn't call it makeshift because it discredits it, but uh, Glenn... Glenn Derry had like five or six towers, uh, motion capture camera towers that could be wheeled in place. And within about 15 minutes, he had a wand that he would go through and calibrate them all fairly quickly so that we could then see what we saw in previs mode uh, in now the blue screen mode with a live composite. And you were shooting native stereo. Native stereo, yeah. Which is not your first native stereo film, of course, but... uh... But Native stereo film. Yeah, but uh, but um, so I was going to ask you. So that on the set stuff uh, sounds really really interesting. But you mentioned in there the body double stuff, and of course the other group that provided uh, some really good input to you for that, I understand, was the um, USC ICT group because they again got in credit in the film, um, and so they were responsible for getting you those uh, great reference or other data on on his actual face and body. Yes, and that's what MP, MPC used, and I assume Weta used the same thing, I don't, though I don't know directly. You might have to ask them specifically about it. But uh, all the, you know, he was, he was sent, uh, all, I think all our doubles were actually sent over to get scanned. And um, the, the, uh, the likeness is uncanny. I mean, it's, it's the, the skin and the, and the quality of the skin. is. Uh, there's so much of it in the movie that um, it's hard to detect. And, and the Lazy River stuff, when he's sitting on the bear, that the top half above his his uh, uh, red diaper there is him, and the bottom half, his legs and parts of his arms are all digital double stuff. Um, and then there's full digital doubles for the wide shots that were imitating his performance. Um, there's a down angle shot that was a digital double that was imitating his performance. Um, and then presumably uh, the stunt stuff, right? Like jumping through trees and swinging over. Yeah, some, yeah, some, um, but wires? not all. 
but not all. Um, and then, but it, and very subtle stuff. I mean, there's a shot where the where uh, it, um, a squirrel flies into a tree, and you're looking over the the squirrel's shoulder, and you see the boy wrapping up um, uh, uh, vines for his build of his uh, uh, the thing for the honey cliff. And uh, I shot that um, uh, with a motion capture double. And uh, even for me, because people didn't realize over here that I did that, you know, or like, you know, where was the live action take for that? And it's like we just made it up, you know, we made it up because we needed it for the scene. And it's uncanny. The um, the, the, the and it's, so all he's doing is is literally just wrapping up a vine. So it's, it doesn't look like a stunt. There's no reason for it to necessarily be a digital double if you had the presence of mind to shoot that scene. Um, and then while I was there, I shot like five or six other ones, including – uh, just a, a straight over the shoulder, looking down part of his body, looking at um, uh, Bagheera because he's up in a tree after he gets kind of pissed off that uh, Baloo is not his friend. And he's and it's very simple. I mean, I'm not, this is not like dramatic stuff of how clever it is, but and we just didn't have that. And I told the colorist that that was a digital. He says, "Well, you're full of it because he's breathing and he's <laughs> as well." That's what we captured. Is we I did X number of takes. And we picked the one where he was jostling around enough to make you believe he's real without it being, um, you know, uh, uh, um, too obvious that, you know, you're, it's acting, that it was just so it looks like a real kid. Just enough so you believe it's, a, it's the body there and he's in character in the scene and he couldn't believe it. It's like, well, but, but look at his chest is moving and his foot. Well, who, who would think to do that? It's like that's the reason why we captured it because we don't think to do that. We we do it as a human being pretty naturally, and that's why you shoot take after take until you get something that a non-acting professional uh, can do to, and you believe it looks real. You know, movie acting isn't real; it's, yeah. it's acting for a camera. It's no, absolutely, yeah. I think that's uh, the funniest thing. People, let's do it for real. Well, that guy isn't really a doctor. <laughs> yeah, well, and and quite frankly, and and the the, the gestalt of the whole movie, is, and and would. The difference of opinion I have with with uh, a lot of CG movies and things is we're not creating real life. We're creating movie life. Movie life, the lighting doesn't necessarily match from shot to shot. It doesn't really, um, you know, if you front light something and you do a reverse backlight uh, 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 the other, you know, you pick the light that makes the scene work the best. And- well, but it's interesting you say that because I totally understand what you're saying. But by the same token, John made a tangential point when he was talking but by saying that he loved how your team didn't necessarily get the uh, like perfect shots in the lighting sense in that, uh, he would have you would have things that would overexpose because if you were exposing for someone under a canopy, the light behind in the sky may not give you a perfect sky, and your team could have easily had a perfect sky exposure and a perfect, uh, you know, actor under a canopy of uh, shadow, and you didn't do that, and he loved that. Yeah, we didn't do that on purpose because it wants to be in our collective memories what a movie looks like, which is photographed as opposed to it's perfected, and the perfection of it, I think, starts to make it look much more um, uh, artificial, even though what you're looking at is even real objects. Like, you know, it's like photography is photography. And and if you want to expose for someone under a tree that's in perfect shadow and then also keep the sky, you have to do a trick with it. You have to bring lights in. And in the 40s, they would bring lights outside. And you kind of could tell it was a studio lit looking thing. 
and it's a little artificial. And and then when we got better at it, and and photographers like Gordon Wallace came in, it's like no, the window, let the window blow out. That's that's fine. That's 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 normal. That uh, don't make it look like you have all this. In fact, when you shoot you know, live action stuff on a stage and you want to make it look like sunlight's pouring in, you overexpose the hell out of the backdrop and the light pouring in through the, through the window. Cause it, you can control it, but as soon as you control it, it becomes, it feels like it's a set. So the, the same philosophy was true with this is that if I'm a cameraman, I'm out in the jungle and I don't have a ton of grip equipment and lighting equipment. I have to pick my exposure for what I want to expose at. And if I want to expose for the kid under the tree, I might say, well, let me keep it a stop under. And that means that the background's like two or three stops over and live with that because you've seen it before. You've seen it in a real movie. And that's suggesting that it's a real movie, not real life, a real movie life that that tells you that you're looking at. You know, uh, um, uh, you know our version. And anytime you see a movie, our version of real life, uh, and it's so different than computer life, where it's perfect. Where again, you you have to put in these imperfections. But it's like, and why would you do that now that you can control everything? Why don't you do it? Because you don't want it to look like you controlled everything. It wants to feel like a real film, and that's what I, you know, our belief system or my belief system is that's that's what makes you just instantly buy the images. Nothing is telling you that it's different than anything you've ever seen, so let me watch what is different, which is the scene that's unfolding. And the background and the exposure and the camera choices and the way the camera moves and how the focus is and how much depth of field there is, all those things almost, when done so well, disappear into the fabric of the movie, and now you just watch the performer and get the intent of that. And that was the drive on every portion of the movie is how to light it and how to create in a computer these, these same conditions. And, and I thought we did a pretty nice job of it. I was very happy with what, what what we did. Did not look like a studio. Yeah. And, and all that. And, uh, you know, part of it that helped a lot was the, uh, the new render man, um, uh, renderer, which is a ray tracer, which, you know, you put a light where the light is, it's going to do all the various things and bounce and all that stuff. And you can put fill cards or whatever you want as a real cameraman would, and you'd get the same kind of effect. Uh, and you, you know, it's, it's, it's what you would do for real. And you do it exactly like that in the computer and do not try to embellish it too much. Don't try to do something too fancy, um, with it. And, 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 it, and it, and it looks real. And, and I, I was very, that's what I was very pleased about as a, as a, I wouldn't call it a landmark film, but a, a movie that's saying, okay, this isn't it, but it's the beginning of it where if you can't tell the difference in any one of our shots that we did between that and a real photographed image, then whoever shot it is a director of photography, uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a film artist, not a technician, not a visual effects you know, a geek or, or a computer person. It, it looks like a real piece of photography, and 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 if it moves you in some way, then you're a filmmaker. You know, then then that thing is not just recording something; it is, it is is has a, a dramatic point of view, and so there's no separation, and it's no different than making any other movie. You just happen to use a different camera, and the camera happened to be a computer as opposed to a digital uh, chip or a piece of film stock. You know, if I can just go back for a second. Uh, to Paul the Perfect's team and, and ICT. So we talked about a bit, but I'm, they did body scanning as well as just face scanning. The reason I'm asking that is because 
there's a lot of contact between, um, you know, a human hand and, and a fur of an animal. <laughs> and I can't imagine that there weren't times that you wouldn't want to have a digital hand just because you need the interaction. And well, that's what it was. It was a digital hand. Like when he grabs and holds his his uh, uh, mother wolf, that's that's a digital hand, you know, cloned onto or cleaved onto his real arm, um, and and it's just perfectly matched. You so know, was the, the skin up. sampled at ICT, or was that uh-huh. just? Shattered? I believe it was. Yeah. Right. I yeah. Believe. And then and then that interaction because that just like gives so much um, uh, quality, but. The other thing that's interesting, I watched it in stereo and so, of course, I was thinking, well, it really matters that his eye lines are right because I, I can perceive better stereo, uh, the, the, the volume that you're in. Did you have any issues with that, with these close interactions? Because, you know, it's one thing to fix a hand but I'm looking at, the, at, at an actor's face and he seems to be connecting with the volume so well. Yes, well, I mean, that, that all that's all that's purposeful, and, when, and it's one of the reasons to do native three D is that you you're watching the native three D as you're photographing it, and um, so you you can tell that he's looking where he's looking, and if you put the object that he is looking at in the same three D space that he was staring at, you know, it, it has to work, and you know, a couple times, you know, it didn't work, or we didn't check it well enough, or in the middle of the take, he gazed at the wrong thing. He is he is a non pro, so there's very sure. You know, you might have, you know, like the, there's the Richard, um, I mean, the Michael Caine trick of looking at the appropriate eye when you're when you're in uh, coverage. That if you look at the just the face alone, you look like you're looking in the wrong spot. So you look with the opposite eye, and so you open up to camera, and it's a it's a movie act an actor trick, um, and and creates the illusion that you're looking at the right thing. Uh, and so, you know, you have to, you know, um, uh, take in some of those tricks and to, to create the illusion that, you know, he's, he's looking where he's supposed to be looking. And we, we went through great pains. We, we had, a, you know, because we had this uh, simulcam, we're able to double expose and see where the animal that he's supposed to be talking to is in space and put the puppeteer and sometimes they literally just had – they just walked apart in a blue suit with uh, uh, two eyeballs where their knuckles were and they would he, they would point the head where and, – and we would tell them, OK, when you're over here, raise your arm up. That's where Shere Khan's head is. That's where Bagheera's head is. And then when you walk over to this mark, it's a little lower and this is where it is and the guy would mimic it. And so when the shot was put together, he, he was following the right eye line, you know. With, with the exception of what I think were moths at the end and this terrific gag with an armadillo in the end titles, it didn't seem like you were pushing the 3D. In fact, compared to Hugo, it felt less like a film that was an exercise in in sort of a 3D staging as it was just, I want to make it immersive. Is that an accurate reflection? Yeah, that is an accurate reflection because I've done, I, I did Hugo and I enjoyed the 3D and all that stuff and we did push it because it's like, well, if it's 3D, then you have to do this. And uh, and uh, I think it worked for that film. Yeah. But then you're just copying it if you do it for another film as opposed to this particular film because you want it to feel like you are watching – everything wanted to support that you're watching a real movie and not watching a CG smorgasbord. So – uh, it was my choice because I didn't really want another um, stereographer. I didn't want somebody to push stereo all the time. And maybe the studio liked it or didn't like it. I don't know. But um, is I only really wanted to use it uh, judiciously and make it look feel perfectly natural that you could melt into the world. 
and 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 not pay attention to it. It's another thing that you don't want to pay attention to, and it just feels kind of like the way your your three D in your own head feels, as opposed to pushed all the time and uh, as a gag. Because again, it's a, you know if it's a gag, then you start to pick up the artificiality of it. And, See, uh, it wasn't until the end titles when there were some gags for gag's sake, right? I mean, the, yeah, the, 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 yeah, that's now all fun and games. Yeah, so sure, you, but and, but and, only uh, then did I say to myself, "Hang on, I haven't been." played as an audience member on 3D. I mean, I will say I felt effectively played with the snake sequence with the Atmos audio, um, but that was a different kind of play, of course. But just staying with the stereo for a second, I just didn't feel, it was like a moment when I saw the moths and the the armadillo, I was like laughing at it and I was thinking, oh, that's really interesting. They haven't been pushing that, you know, it's not like, I know maybe I jumped at a jump scare a bit more because it was in 3D, but it just didn't feel like it was a, you know, spirit your face kind of movie. No, but it was, we did, uh, you know, what I did subtly uh, and, and to do it this way, you have to hold back on other areas is the one character that is continually off the screen is Shere Khan. Right. Shere Khan continually in your lap or, or, you know, in the audience um, as part of his personality of intimidation and to make that subtlety work without being hit over the head is is that the other characters are comfortably at the screen or back, but not so obviously so. So that it, so that now you just it's like you know literally like someone who's in your face uh, uh, in real life tends to walk a little closer to your your comfortable zone than somebody else does, uh, um, and so it makes you feel a little uncomfortable. And so that's really all that was attempting to do and the contrast of that is somebody everybody else you know uh in your comfortable zone not in not 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 too close so everything was carefully played in fact you know a couple times the studio said well when are you gonna do all the 3d gags it's like well i'm not (laughs) (laughs) Uh, talking about that snake sequence though uh so there was something funky and and i mean in a good way going on behind uh with i think with the stereo it was obviously part of the sort of hypnotizing stuff i was paying too much attention to the story to spend enough time analyzing what was happening but what were you doing behind the character that was it just a a a, um, hitchcock kind of vertigo pull or was it pretty much a, a hitchcock thing except that now you're also um, uh, altering organically the material. Like a Hitchcock thing, it's usually it's a hard surface like a hallway or yep. the, the staircase in, in Vertigo. But this one is more that the, the, the vines are moving and, and not necessarily like because of wind or whatever else. It's just, you know, giving you a little more of a, a, a hypnotic, uh, acid trippy thing while you're also doing the push-pull zoom uh, 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 scenario. So it's just, again, it's there to isolate the person be on the periphery. That's where the 3D works pretty well for that. Uh, it, it gives you that extra bit of, of uh, dimension that the 2D get, 2D Hitchcock gag doesn't give you. Because um, you could be a little more subtle with how much you're doing it because you see it in 3D and, and it really does emphasize it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's that gag. Just added the, the, the bit where now the, the vines and the things have a life of their own and they're moving kind of snake-like is, in, in essence. Now, it, it should be used as a clip uh, for um, selling Atmos audio because the, it was such an effective use of audio in the sense that you had a big character that felt like it was around the audience because yeah. of the audio. But I was just wondering, like, if you were viewing that in dailies and you didn't have the advantage of the, like, I don't know how many million speakers that I was listening to that audio in, um, 
did it like you? I mean, it just did it change the the pacing because you sort of it works because you don't see the snake and you have the audio behind you and over your back. But of course, when you're first looking at it, you don't have that advantage of the audio. Did it feel flatter and suddenly come to life or you just had a lot of faith that the audio would get you there? Well, it's definitely flatter, but you, you're allowing room for it to say, okay, this is what we're going to do with this scene to bring it to life. I mean, part of it, you know, the filmmaking chore is, you know, when you're shooting something, you don't have the benefit of the scene put together and the music and the sound effects to give you the total effect. You have to make a bed for it and imagine in your head. Um, and in a movie like, so, you know, you, you have to have the discipline to say, well, because I don't hear it or see it, I'm not going to use it. You have to plan that we believe that's going to that, that's going to embellish the scene and make it play. And even for us who know, you know, like to think we know what we're doing, um, the movie gets upped every time you you polish the material. As soon as you comp it once, and a comp may not be very good the first time, but that really amps it up a little bit, and you're starting to get closer and closer to what you think the vision is, and you're always adjusting it as it's creeping up to that to that uh, level, uh, including making an, uh, an alteration. You know what? It plays so much better. Give it an extra second than you would uh, because now that you're hearing it, you do that. You're not changing it wholesale and, and, and just like completely altering it, but you are setting it up, planning for it and, and doing it. And I think in this movie, even for me, the, the, the music made Neil's performance that much more compelling. Yeah, that yeah. was that was a little flat. It was a little thing, but then all of a sudden the music cues you to what he's supposed to be thinking or feeling or sensing, and then he de- then the onus isn't totally on him to capture your imagination because the music helped you get there, and it was remarkable. It's like well, he became a better actor literally by putting the music in just hmm. right off the bat, and. And to the point where, you know, if you enjoyed his performance, that's there is a, a good reason for it is the is the post-production, um, uh, you know, uh, addition to it. And then when you add in the sound, I mean, I love the Atmos stuff. I always I always love like 5.1 and 7.1 as a as a uh, um, immersive, just like 3D is mm. as an immersive uh, filmmaking tool to create. And it doesn't have to make sense. It, you know, it has to only be be plausible in movie terms, not in real life terms that, you know, have a sound that goes from one side of the room to the other, even though it's not literally, well, that person was over here and now they're over here and I'm trying to justify exactly what's happening. It's just because it's, it's in your head. It's a little bit, you know, um, uh, impressionistic, uh, uh, you know, hearing voices at a party, you, they're all over the place, but if you cue into one of them, it becomes very specific. So you could create all these various things with that, and 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 the jungle is a perfect uh, uh, place for that because you have animals from all descriptions in all places in the in the jungle. Makes you feel like you're in this kind of party esque atmosphere or something where noise is coming from at from every direction, and you can't even see it. So it, it's such an ideal bed for that kind of work and then you know creatively you just use sound you know you know it's just it is as creative as picture you know it it really does add so much to the movie so let me discuss dare i say it the elephant in the room but that i saw the film and i saw it early and so i didn't have a lot of sort of pre press or anything else polluting my my thinking somebody saw me the next day and they said oh how did you sort of react to the whole um, celebrity talking animals thing 
to which I was like, I hadn't even thought of celebrity talking animals. But you have got some really strong actors that have very yeah. distinctive voices, especially in Christopher Walken and Bill Murray. Um, was it a concern for you? I mean, I, I understand that it could be a concern. I didn't think it was, but was there like, uh-oh, this is going to look awkward? Uh, well, yes. I mean, if, at first, you know, and, and you know, usually you kind of come up with the most simplest um, of solutions to things. Uh, and again, part of the gestalt of the movie was, was movie reality um, and not um, uh, uh, don't st- – I don't know how to exactly word this, but if you stylize the animals – you would never suspend disbelief. They would always be an animated character and you'd always sense the actor playing them because it's a larger than life thing. It's And, and you buy it in an animated movie because the whole thing is larger than life and hyper real and it, it's not even the ballpark of that. And you kind of, and you do sense the actor acting and the, and the, and having fun with it and all that stuff. But in something like this, what you want to do is forget that that's what you're watching. That if you make the initial leap that if, a leopard could speak. He wouldn't enunciate every word. He could only use the jaw that God gave him. He would only be able to use the facial muscles that that God gave him and no more. And so if you give him a sense of intelligence and only let him speak as if such a thing is possible uh, and and certainly have a certain amount of intelligence, you would... And this is not like, oh, we know what we're doing. It was like, well, this is the best way that we could figure out how to do it. That eventually you would just get sucked into the performance like you would be Marlon Brando as The Godfather. You just But, but see, the Marlon Brando and The Godfather hits in, in, in the first act. It felt to me like maybe you were being helped by the fact that the most distinctive voices weren't really hitting to the second and the third act. And I was in by that stage. You know what I mean? Like. Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how conscious that was as a structural element. Uh, it just because that's the story, and the story is the story. But you know, you you once you on board, you could take more and more liberties because you've eased into it. If you yeah. did something really outrageous at the beginning, and you say, "Well, I don't buy any of it," you the rest of the movie you're not buying it. But as soon as you kind of get the character, and you get used to the the conceit that we're creating, which is animals do in fact talk. But they don't talk in a cartoony way. They talk as if, well, if that really occurred, that's the only way it could speak because that's the only way it, it, its mouth moves. And, and, you know, we did tests too where the animators, of course, animate every syllable. And it's like, well, that looks too weird. It looks too funky. And if you look at Ben Kingsley talking, sometimes his lips don't move as he's saying the next word. It just you know, we don't do that. And so let's not do that with an animal either. And that was, that was a conscious choice. I mean, I and had the- a moment when Ben Kingsley first uh, voice appeared that I like, am I going to like this or not? And then I was good after that. Um, yeah, well, we had, <laughs> we had the same moment because it was also one of the first things we shot, literally the first things we shot, and where we're still, you know, finding our way. And um, uh, and it's the first time you're you're just breaking the whole you know, uh, uh, conceit of the film, which is it looks, you know, for the most part, it looks real. And then all of a sudden this thing comes out of his mouth. And then then you start getting into the character and how he relates to the kid and you slowly work your way into it. And then the next time you see the next voice, it's Lupita Nyong'o um, talking to him. And But it's an emotional moment. So you're, you have these other little 
things, these other little nuances that are hopefully absorbing you into the story of she's a caring mother, he's got a problem, he wants to fit in, it's a universal you know, kind of story or theme or, or, or feeling people could relate to it. We could relate to him not fitting in, relate to the mother feeling sorry for him, relate to the little brothers and sisters who don't really give a shit because they want to play and they don't, they're not conscious of what it feels like to be a grown up or, or growing up. So it has all those things that are working uh, all at the same time that, you know, again, it's all a calculation. You just hope that people like it is that those things are the things that make those moments melt you into the suspension of disbelief to say, well, I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the story. I'm, I'm, I'm with the characters. So look, um, I, if I can be presumptuous, when Shere Khan first appears at the waterhole, his mm-hmm. walk and the muscle uh, and underlying bone structure and the way that the weight moves from paw to paw mm-hmm. is just like the finest animation uh, stuff I've ever seen. I was just like yeah, blown I, away. I would have to say the same. It is, it is, uh, and I looked at just recently... Um, Life of Pi, which was very good in its time, but you could sort of tell when it went from the real tiger to the digital tiger and the weight wasn't exactly right. And I'd say, you know, Andy Jones and the team at MPC, the animators were excellent. And every, again, you know, the the conceit of the film too is don't create anything out of whole cloth. Look for reference of the animal doing what we wanted to do in the scene and then just copy it. So (coughs) every muscle move, <clears throat> every nuance of that continually makes you believe it it could be real and uh don't make it fanciful don't make it too light don't make it too heavy don't don't do anything other than make it look like it's uh you know if you brought a a, a tiger to the set that's the way you would have to move and you'd move it from point a to point b and then then so shoot a bunch of takes while his head is looking the right direction and then put a fake mouth on it you know so i'm so glad that you said that but because Shere Khan, to me, as I say, like I think it's the best animation I've ever seen of like an animal moving. But it is looking exactly like an animal. Like I could imagine that you could get an animal to do almost that kind of action. And then, but here's the thing: when you get firstly to Bill Murray's character, but then particularly to King Louis, you are actually moving away a bit more from, you know, what you would get an animal to do, and or at least there's there's this issue of like how much do you want to bring the personality of Christopher Walken into the actual design of King Louis, given that he's not a sort of an obvious um, direct orangutan and maybe Baloo as well. I don't know. What do you think about that? Like, I mean, how much did you tweak the... Well, that's the risk. And, and that's where the structure of the film worked in our advantage or the characters that were picked and the, the larger than life personalities that they create are... Are, are fitting the, the the template of the movie. So at, at the beginning, you 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 you're, you're in the in the zone of Shere Khan is definitely a real thing. He's one of my favorites in the movie because there's something about Idris Elba's performance capturing the caliber of that animal and the the majesty of 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 it and the way it moved and the subtlety in which it moved and the the point of view it had was all very strong and so now you're really into kind of the you know if we could make the statement the realism of it the uh forgetting that it's an actor in a in a booth and a and a a bunch of you know ones and zeros in a in a, a computer somewhere that you're just sort of you know you're buying it now when you get to bull uh, Bill Murray, he is a larger-than-life funny man. He is 
you don't get immersed necessarily or forget that it's Bill Murray when you're watching a Bill Murray movie. You you and you enjoy that because you enjoy watching him. That's why he's a movie star. But and uh, the bear is particularly difficult to make it look believable when it's doing something unbear-like. You know, the bear in one of the great moments in cinema history has got to be the the bear attack in The Revenant, where the bear is only doing this with the same amount of ferocity what a real animal does, and they copied yep. specifically a real bear attack to the point where. You believe it to be real because it's so unusual and so behavioral as a different creature than we are that you t- – it's so odd that you, ha- you have no choice but to believe it. And they obviously did a beautiful job rendering and animating and all that stuff. But in our case, you know, a friendly bear is a – not a real thing. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's definitely a – so you have to hope that the audience is with the movie to take this leap – uh, with this particular guy, and now you hopefully just enjoy the the camaraderie and the friendship and the and the story point that's being made. So you're kind of amping up into the unreality of it, but still, because it was put in the movie where it's put uh, by design or by chance um, where it is, or by John's chance of saying, "Well, let me pick a uh, a not an Idris Elba like character for Blue, but a funny man." Um, and then the same thing with, with uh, King Louis. King Louis is a larger-than-life character, and so is Christopher Walken's voice. He's a larger-than-life. But now you've actually got a, a character that feels like scale, scale-wise unnaturally large in the sense yes. that I, I don't you – know, every other character seemed in proportion to an elephant. And yeah, I mean I, I, that made me nervous at first, and I didn't know exactly why we were doing it when we first started. And then you have to embrace that that's what we're doing, so we're doing it. Uh, uh, and then you then work hard to light him to look like he's Marlon Brando and the, the Godfather. Pop- yeah, I mean it was it was literally Boring, uh, apocalypse now. Marlon, we, we we stole and used as a reference, you know, the 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 first introduction to Marlon Brando, who is playing a larger than life character in that movie. In, in in a in a cinematic, you know, um, uh, way of presenting him, not just oh, he just walked in the door. It's like you're doing something, and you're doing something with the skill of lighting and camera angles and various things, and the and you've built him up, uh, um, you know, uh, to create this uh, entrance, uh, um, you know, in Apocalypse Now and to some degree in, in, in this movie with the animals. Mm. You're taking him to a secret place. He's basically it's, it's Apocalypse Now. You're taking him, mm. take him to this one secret place where the ruler of the of the the, the roost is hidden from view and um, just slowly release the character. So it's literally a, a, a Apocalypse Now sort of reveal. And then you have to say, well, we hope that we are – that the audience hasn't left us by that particular time. And it was a bold choice by John, I think, to to not – to make him you know, way larger than life. I mean you can make him a pretty big guy. You can make him you know, the Will Chamberlain of, of, of uh, orangutans, but he went even larger than that. So and that, and that was stretching it a bit in terms of you know, the reality and it becomes more, quite frankly, a visual effect shot at that point and not – quite what I was uh, uh, mostly trying to do, which is photograph it, light it, um, uh, uh, shoot it as if these things could really happen, which I was very happy with, like in the Peace Rock scene with Shere Khan, where it felt like we photographed it pretty much the way it would be. We're in bald sunlight, but if you're a decent cameraman, you put 
you'd shoot the right time of day and capture it and capture real animal and real behavior and all that stuff. So then when we get to King Louis, it's now it's a, you know like a Marvel movie at some point. It's a larger than life character doing some you know a big action scene. Uh, but you know I, I like to think, especially if you enjoyed the film, that you allowed for that as. Uh, uh, um, you know, an extension in the movie that is that that is also enjoyable. It's not just trying to make you know a very straight film. Yeah, I mean, I think we were so in love with the film by that point that we let you guys as filmmakers do anything you wanted. But also, I think Christopher Walken just has a great performance, and so you you know you want to like it, like it's uh, yeah. I mean, he's instantly. I mean, when we first showed it to. Um, uh, the press, you know, we shot uh, uh, one of those scenes. We showed it to them. They laughed as soon as they heard his voice, just right off the bat. As soon as you hear that, that very distinctive, and we've heard it so much because everybody imitates him. So yeah. it's not even just hearing Christopher Walken; you're hearing the caricature of Christopher Walken every time, and he sounds like he's almost doing a caricature of himself. Uh, so you instantly are enthralled. There's something enthralling about this guy. That's why everybody on earth wants to imitate him. And, um, and every comedian does a bit and they get their biggest laughs by doing a Christopher Walken impression. And he's not even that big an actor. He's not Marlon Brando. I mean, he's, he's Christopher Walken. He's a very good actor and, and he's in, you know, uh, you know, fairly decent movies, but for the most part, we love the caricature of him. The, 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 yeah, it is the most bizarre deer hunter meets Apocalypse Now meets Disney animated character. Um, yeah. But I wanted to ask you now at a technical level, because uh, I'm sure lots of people will discuss Christopher Walken and I'm sure he's a great guy, but I wanted at a technical level to discuss something I thought was really, really interesting. You have these scenes where you've got this character animated as it should be for a large character in the context of the story. But interestingly, you get another look at that character inside a book at the end uh, where it's interacting with a character that's out of scale completely. And I thought, well, there's a really interesting exercise in how much does the animator, not the model or the framing, give you weight? And I, I mean, it's like a, like it's not a scene in the film, it's in the end credits, right? So it's forgivable for anything you want. But somebody loved that scene in the end credits. Oh, John wanted, that was John's thing. He he wanted to do this and he wanted to feel like it's a tabletop. And, you know, again, our perception, our movie making perception is, and he was nervous that, well, how do we make it look like a tabletop? Well, you put it on a table with a, a piece of velvet around it. Uh, you can't help, but now it's a toy. You, you've, you've photographed in such a way that you've told everybody it's, a little miniature creature, and you wouldn't have done anything differently if that was a wide shot in the movie. That's what I was interested but, in. Like it was, you felt like it was animated and and blocked, just like it would if if you took all that stuff away and it was a helicopter shot looking down at Louis. I was interested. Did it like get changed for scale? It didn't really get changed for scale, although. The, you know, it, that's why it's so interesting perception and what you're doing, and when you're into that. It's kind of now a toy and an animated thing. Um, uh, um, I got some messages just came across the screen. Hold on a second. Let me get rid of it. It was interrupting me. Um, that, you know, kind of all bets are off. And so you're now going for the playful, funny thing. And we would have viewed it differently if it were in a shot in the movie and say, oh, no, he's moving too fast or there's not enough weight or let's nudge when make sure when he grabs onto something that that also has some give. Make sure, make sure you know, all the little nuances you do to make something feel real. 
when you're into now seeing the cartoon version of it, it doesn't have to be so you're judging it with different eyes. It's not quite as purposeful of saying, okay, now we're switching gears or we're doing cartoony. It's just that because you put it into this cartoony world or this make-believe miniature world, you judge it just differently. And, 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 it, and I would dare say that if we made it absolutely the same, um, you would probably still view it as this cute little scene because he's a little he's a little tiny monkey instead of this giant. But it's ape. not a mini me version of King Louis. It's still King Louis. And what's really interesting to me is this other giant character. Uh, I don't know what type of animal it is. Comes in from camera left, and kind of uh, it's like one of the mice type things, if I remember yeah. correctly. Um, yeah. And so I thought it was like, well, there you're really playing with scale. You've got outside the book is normal scale, inside the book is small, and you're really just seeing how far you can push this in a way that almost no filmmaker gets to be that kind of experimental without, you know. Well, it's almost like because this was part of that that was viewed is like, well, we could do an outtake, which I always love. I think that's very funny where yeah. you know uh, he he flubs his line and and all that stuff, and then you you basically pulling down the curtain and saying, okay. You're now seeing what we what we really did, and this was doing it in a different way than the outtake version, but achieving the same end, which is let's you know uh, 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 pull open the curtain, and now you're actually seeing it. So now when you see a miniature Shere Khan being you know uh, um, attacked by a, a Jerboa that is you know 50 times its size, and he is now a miniature thing. You, it, it's a whole different ball. I was a little even nervous about that that we've sort of undermined our our Marlon Brando uh, at the end of the movie by doing a cutesy thing, but it still works. It works because you just kind of love it and it's fun. And, and it was obviously meant with love and, 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 uh, and, and a little bit of joy and, and uh, a little celebration of what we just did and all that stuff. So it kind of all worked together. But I, I think again, you, you, you go to great pains to shoot something to make the, the, the accoutrement around it, give the character weight. Like if you want to create a villain, you tend to shoot him a little lower. You usually put him in the foreground. He's usually lit a slightly differently than the other people. His, the, you block it out to make him feel like that. And if you did none of those things, he would just look like a regular guy. But because we filmed him specifically, his performance would not even be different. It's just the fact that we filmically, cinematically set him up to be what he is. And as soon as you don't do that, now it's kind of a brightly lit scene. He's jumping around, uh, of, you know, what looks like a miniature, you know, a miniature. And uh, it's funny and it's fun and it's no longer has no weight to him and he's no longer. And it works for the pulling down the curtain and showing, you know, what we really were doing. Were you on uh, stage the day they shot the book? I shot the book. So, so can you tell us the story about the book and the, the, what happened to make the book move? <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, yeah, the story is uh, that is the actual book uh, that was in Jungle Book. Uh, uh, believe it or not. Um, you mean you could, the original Jungle Book, right? Yeah. The, original, the 67 Jungle yeah. Book, the, the Disney one. So it's in their archive. Um, the only one person is allowed to touch it, which is the archivist. So he had it as if this was, you know, the first Bible. Um, <laughs> his white gloves on. And I set up the shot and all that. We put a bunch of holes below the surface of the um, of where the velvet was, and uh, we said, "Well, you know, we want to poke the book and make it move." So, um, what do you what do you say about that? And we basically said, and, and so the only way to sell it is say, 
and we are nervous about it, so we want you to do it. And he went, okay. So our, our guy, <coughs> you know, went under the table, our archivist, and um, we gave him a musical beat to hit, and we just shot it, just photographed it. And now it's blended in, you know, rather well with the CG version of it for the pages opening up because that you couldn't, even if we wanted to open up those pages and get them exactly right, they already u- had used that book for Robin Hood. The interior. So that the, the the just like a movie, it's only a facade. The the cover is a facade. Inside is nothing. Is is Robin Hood pages. So um, it, it, it's, it was very funny. But that was like the homage to the '67 version and the beginning of you know poking fun at ourselves a bit uh, to do the uh, to do the uh, end titles but we we just literally photographed it and they used and we wanted to make sure that it was so much easier for them to just say can we just make please make it all cg but we wanted that extra little bit of air of authenticity that it looks like it's a photographed item i just love uh, this guy in white gloves under the table with his sort of lab coat on <laughs> with a stick poking this his cherished uh, gutenberg bible you know <laughs> Can you imagine uh, so, him going home that night and like, well, I, I'm, I'm in a movie now. I didn't know what it was going to be today, but I am, darling. Um, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that was a big story for his wife and kids. Yeah, that, sure. Know, not believe it. I'm hey, in trouble. And at the other end of the film, you had some fun with the opening titles in a world yeah. that would be otherwise CG. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Actually, my son shot that stuff. And we, oh, really? Yes, uh, uh, with a, 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 a 7D, my 7D camera. And um, John wanted to do something like that, and I really wanted to do it because I thought it was fun as hell. And we were looking at um, a material that was, you know, the big innovation for Disney, which was the multiplane camera and all that. And we wanted to kind of have a nod to uh, that we appreciated the past or where we came from and not say, okay, let's just wipe everything clean and do this fancy CG thing. So the, the impulses for it were uh, the multiplane camera innovation and then the... Uh, so the let me just explain for people that don't know what we're talking about. We're talking about the actual Disney logo now, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. The logo, the coming out through the clouds, seeing the stars and seeing the... There's all hand and cell animated um, uh, uh, fireworks with a Disney animator animating it. And my son, you know, did the, you know, one frame at a time with a, with my still camera instead of a, you know, a Mitchell or something like that. And, but we shot it in Technicolor in terms of that we shot it. I had him shoot it with a red filter, green filter, and a blue filter for every frame. Oh, wow. And, uh, uh, and so that it would have this patina of how they had to do it back in the day, which is they, there's no, the only way they could shoot color is to shoot, you know, a, a, a a black and white film with a red filter, green filter, and blue filter in subsequent frames, and then optically, you know, skip uh, print yep. those to get them to work. So, uh, so we we basically created this multiplane uh, shot that is the old version of the multiplane shot, blending into the new version of the CG multiplane, which is which is the opening of the of the movie where you go go from the old to now the new, and then our new Mowgli style of animating is, you know, what, how we did the movie. So it's very subtle and, 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 uh, and, 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 you know, like a subconscious sort of thing, but it was purposeful. That was a very specific, you know, choice. We had the Bambi opening as the, as an inspiration of back then it was probably the most realistic cartoon that could ever be done because now it starts to look like it was really photographed because you have some multiplaning going on um and we said here's let me show you what it used to be now we're going to show you what it is now 
all achieving the same end that our new audience is going to say, wow, look how realistic because we're doing this new realistic version of, of, of telling the story. So that, that's the little story behind it. My son shot it in separate cells. We put it together in Nuke. First, at first I, I tested it in After Effects and made you know a camera with literally multi-planes, just imitated what that camera actually did. Got the formula from a Disney animator who used to do stuff like that, yeah. lay out multi-plane shots and it was fun it was fun as hell i i, I really enjoyed uh the the exercise of doing it and then you know we had mpc kind of uh, finesse it a little bit uh to get all the 3d exactly right uh and then they also had to blend into their own version and make a seamless shot out of it but uh but ultimately that was a separately photographed thing and my son michael uh, uh was the the uh, animation cameraman and uh um, so respectful was, to the tradition of the filmmaking that went before it. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I, I personally love that. I mean, I, I got that with with um, uh, Hugo, and I got that with you know, just even me growing up and doing this sort of work. Where so impressed with the hanging miniature thing that was invented and the Schuftan process that was patented in 1925 or whatever it was, and and then of course we're working on Hugo, where the the genius of George Millier's um, uh, creating these things that. All we're really doing is is um, you know stepping a bit on their sh- their shoulders to, to advance the same idea just with today's technology as opposed to but the idea is identical the 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 quest for it and the audience for it raises up with the technology but back then that was like super real looking stuff and and that was the state of the art and we wanted to pay homage to, i mean i always love that i, I mean I, I i i'm so impressed the more i i studied technicolor and all the various things like i did in aviator how incredibly brilliant these guys were who came up with this stuff mm-hmm. when when there was nothing to compare it to so that oh, just by the nature of me working on a movie it's always going to leak in it's always if somebody says an idea instead of going no that won't work we should just do it all cg it's like no shit i want to do it i mean that <laughs> I want to. I want to. On attack. I want to do it that way, and I want to shoot it with red, green, and blue filters. I want to do the the whole smash just like it was, and then do the whole smash the other way. Here's yeah. what it used to be. Let me show you what it's going to be now. Now I know John appeared. John Favreau appeared as the pygmy hog that gets uh, exfoliated yes. by a honey. <laughs> was there a particular Easter egg? Did you appear at any point? Is there uh, no? Anything? I did, no, I did not. And this is probably not true, but it was. I I, I did it to amuse the the some of the reporters are at a thing is that I, I brought up that I lost um, the Oscar to a talking pig. Uh, and, and when I did Apollo, Apollo 13, 13. yeah. And then I asked, John in front of them, I asked John in front of him, I said, was this like a purposeful dig, you know, that you uh, not only put a talking pig in it, but you voiced it. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. And I remember that year with Apollo 13 very well. And, uh, and yes. I was definitely in the Apollo 13 camp, but um, yes, some great work done back then at digital domain. Um, not, not that the guys didn't do good work at Rhythm and Years. No, they well. did a great, you know, and, and, and it's all a joke because they did a lovely job. And, and anybody, you know, our, our whole idea is that anybody who gets nominated deserves to win and it's the luck of the draw of winning. So it's, it's not like, oh, well, that was a miscarriage of justice in any way, shape or form, nor is any other award that's given out but, in that. But, uh, but think about my Easter egg thing for a second. So, so if there isn't an Easter egg vis-a-vis you, is there anything, because I, I did, was taken by this idea that, uh, John was so enthusiastic to see the animators being able to do stuff. Is there anything in the background? Because you would have watched everything many more times than I have. 
um, and studied all this stuff. Is there some action, some secondary action, something that most people would never notice that you just caught your eye one day and you went, wow, someone's really thoughtfully done that? Well, the, the one is there's always a purposeful thing for all these Disney movies that you have a, a Mickey Mouse appearance uh, in the in the movie, however you do it, whether it's a shadow. And actually in the Weta version uh, or portion of the movie, which is the uh, the coal lair, as we call it, uh, uh, the monkeys for one frame gang up and create a, a, a Mickey Mouse looking shadow on the wall. And it, that was Mickey. very specifically done. Okay. <laughs> the Mickey ears. And then. Um, quite frankly, I mean, I don't know if it's it's that. Just besides the the joy that the animators have in doing their work, is that if you you uh, next time you view it, stare at the background creatures. They all have different peculiar personalities and stuff. And every time we will look at it, because you look at the main action, you're judging it and being critical. And what about this? And what about that? You forget the periphery and what's in the little personalities at the little periphery animals are doing that some animator somewhere is putting a lot of their their uh, um, uh, personality into their backgrounds and they i'm sure have gags that we never know about uh being put in um so the the, the uh, uh i don't rem- i don't remember or maybe i'm not conscious of all the other easter eggs i'm sure there's a ton of them in there that the mpc animators put in Maybe Andy Jones put in. The, certainly, we did that with Weta. That was a pur- very specific, purposeful thing. And then some of my best, my my, my uh, favorite little characters are the monkeys in the um, in coal layers. There's one in particular where it just sits by itself and kind of uh, crosses its legs and looks a little shy and tepid. It was like, well, what a a absolute lovely little personality this guy has. And he's just to the right of Mowgli, and I always get a kick out of. Uh, oh, the one for me is that uh, reaction on the wolf cub when it's uh, some packs eat their weaklings or something is the line. Yes, and the reaction shot. Oh my god, that was just a that was like a masterclass in in a reaction shot. And that's uh, John's daughter playing that character. Really? Well, that I mean, the performance is great, but but in this case, it was the animator, right, who just did yeah, this oh, look yeah. on the cub's face of like just yeah it was yeah. spectacularly nice character animation yeah there's and it's good one's one of my favorite ones because we were deciding on how we we're going to do it and um i don't want to take credit for it in print but i'm pretty sure that i i uh, it was the moment where um uh bagheera is sneaking into the coal lairs and trying to get his attention uh and they're struggling with you know um you know how he would do that, and uh, I said, "You just flick your head. You just kind of, kind of, you know. It's like if you're trying to get somebody's attention who's talking with somebody else, and you're behind him. You just kind of move your head in the in the direction that you want somebody to go, and it creates the illusion that that you know, let's go, let's get out of here. And so they just did it. They did exactly that, and that was like, oh my god, that works. It was like, yeah, because it's you, you know, it's human. We're used to yeah. seeing that kind of thing, and it's very subtle." They're trying to do all these different kinds of things and and raising an eyebrow and and all the, all the stuff you just don't need to do. Just a flick of the head is all the personality you need at that particular moment, and it's exactly how you would have shot it on stage if it were a person. You'd even do that way. So, uh, it, you know, it was, it was one of those kind of things where it's like it does translate. You know, acting choices and blocking and all that translates no matter what you're what you're photographing. Um, and I had, a, I had a great time. I was, I was doing the second unit on the movie, and I did the uh, the infant Mowgli scenes. And the funny part about that, to, it's like shooting a dog, quite frankly, <laughs> is that you, you're trying to get a, a, a kid to act, and he can't act. 
So you, you just have to get them to react. And the, the main thing that got his performance was an iPhone. Oh, really? That he, you know, was looking up and, and reaching for the face of Bagheera, except what he was reaching for was an iPhone. And he kept on pulling it away from him, so he kept on reaching more, and he really wanted that thing. And it creates the illusion that he was acting to Bagheera, but he's actually not. He's now, just- was that little infant in any way, it was just like a, a, a reference capture or was it like a motion capture or? No, so we shot him, we photographed him. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. So, so it was actually a hundred percent at that point. He was a hundred percent him, but of course Bagheera is not there and yeah, yeah. anything like that is not there. So all that, all that he's reaching for is mom is dressed in a little blue suit um, and she's holding his favorite toy, which is the iPhone. And, uh, you know, you pull it away too long, he starts to cry. And then that's a different moment that we use. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, when you give it to him and he looks happy, uh, that's because he got it. And, uh, um, and you're, just, you're stealing reactions uh, in essence. And, well, and- it's, it's, it's great. I mean, the whole film's great. Congratulations. It's just mm-hmm. uh, it's terrific work. And I, I, I love just how technical it is in terms of its ability to tell a story. Um, just remarkable. I, I yeah, I'm really, really stunned at how how much I got into it and uh, how great it yeah, was. I'm delighted that you just responded to it. I I, I really am. Um, you know, I, I it was a fun thing to do. And you know, and every time you do any of these things where you're taking a little bit of a leap, say okay, well, here's my conjecture, and I think it's going to make this movie different enough and similar enough to work is a risk you know you just don't know you know you just don't know that it's going to work uh, purposely but you have to support that plan for the next two years you make that intellectual thought and 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 go with it and you know i i I always had found in my particular case you know there's so many filmmakers who worked on the movie so it's not just me doing it but you know when i um pick a certain thing it just is an intuition it just feels correct to do it like when i did uh, uh, using aviator as an example is i didn't have any money to do a, a michael bay crash scene or anything like it so let me just do it the old-fashioned way models and miniatures and uh set up an editorial uh, sequence of events that makes it feel like it's you're just w- witnessing as close to the real mechanics and physics that could be and i'll use that as the as the basis of it that and and get out of its way don't don't embellish uh the thing and make it work and the same thing i did with apollo and all the others you just pick something that feels like that's the way you want to tell that story and just hope you're correct and um and in some cases you are you know some cases that you're sticking to your guns and not also the urges second guessing yourself after you if you made that leap that intuition leap and questioning it intellectually kind of destroys your own creativity. So it's like just pick what you want to do and make sure you support it all along the way. So it has a feeling of oneness to it. It has a feeling of a, of a, 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 a completed thought and not a committee decision like, you know, mess that I, and I think that's what separates good movies from bad movies is, is you have too many cooks in the, in the kitchen uh, altering the storytelling to the point where it's incoherent uh, as a as a as a as a, a oneness to it as as a uh, a completed thought and um, I was lucky that we had such a great group of people to you know all support the same kind of film and and I'm glad I'm just delighted you liked it. It's been so great talking to you and uh, again I really appreciate your time. Thank you. 
Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks to Rob and Mike for that. I uh, really appreciate that interview and hope you check out the film. It's a great film. I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, FX PhD changes that we've made. We've also doing a new membership drive for our FX Insider program. We offer FX Insiders access to exclusive content and expanded articles. Over the years, people have said, how can I help FX Guide and what can I do? And you guys do a lot of work on the site and uh, there's not a lot of banner advertising and things like that. So one of the ways you can help us grow the site and to help contribute to the FX Insider program in exchange, we'll hook you up with some exclusive content and expanded articles. So go to fxguide.com and click the FX Insider tab. And I hope you'll join us over there, too. Well, that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, I'm Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.